der Triathlon Show 411. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Bas van Horen. Bas is a sports scientist, sports science consultant, and a runner with multiple national championship medals and a 10k PB of 28.41. And uh, in this interview, we discuss a number of topics that he has researched, uh, including practical applications of these findings as well. Some of the topics we cover include cooldowns, treadmill versus outdoor running, older athletes that perform at a really high level, strength and conditioning, science and application, devices and technology, and quite a few more bits and pieces. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens, including splits, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. This means that you can execute your swim workouts better and get a better idea of your ability to hold certain paces and stroke rates and understand when and why you start to slow down. The best thing is that you can see and interpret this data in real time in the session, so it's uh, actionable and it can help you right then and there. You don't have to go into uh, the workout data after, you can understand right as you're working on, on your swim. Also, it adds more fun and engagement to swim training, especially if you're swimming solo. And you can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency even when you're short on time. It's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home, even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool. And it is a good complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming like your catch or your power or you can isolate these more easily than you can in the water. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back and you can get 20% off your first order on senatewintrade.com for slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's the interview with Bas van Horen. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Bas. How are you doing? Hello, Michael. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm uh, happy to be on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Let's uh, start with an introduction. Can you tell us more about who you are? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm working primarily at the University of Maastricht uh, at the Department of Nutrition and Movement Sciences. So that's uh, in the Netherlands for those who don't know. I'm doing research there, uh, quite a lot of different topics. I guess we will cover a few of them uh, later on, but most of them are related somehow to running. Um, in addition to the work at the university, I also work at a governmental organization, which is called Top Sport Topics. So it's a, a sort of consultancy-based uh, job that I'm doing there. So if uh, coaches like national-level coaches have a question about, uh, let's say, should they do altitude training, should they use some kind of uh, nutritional supplements, what strength exercise should they be doing, how should they program jumps whatever then uh, i have to delve into the literature and try and uh, provide an evidence-based answer which is also something i really enjoy and uh, finally i'm also working at a wearable tech company it's called arion uh, in eindhoven also in the netherlands and they make uh, wearable technology so pressure sensitive insoles to um, measure a variety of metrics during running and also in the future we're also expanding this to some other movements so that's uh, sort of a very brief summary of uh, the work i'm doing yeah, you got a lot of uh, lots of irons in the fire, and uh, I know that you're also a pretty handy runner yourself. So, what is your own uh, athletic background like? Yeah, true. Um, well, I, I, ju- I guess I just started at uh, a high school cross uh, someday, and then there I found out I was uh, quite a good runner. Um, and then I had to, yeah, I could go to the sort of uh, national cross country school championships, and also there I think I finished third place without too much training essentially well basically no running training so we're just uh, doing some football and some volleyball i did in the past and then i just found out well actually it's perhaps uh, something i like doing and uh, i'm good at it so then i, I gradually picked up running uh, more and more and yeah i just ramped up the, the training volume over time the intensity also changed quite a bit of a time and uh, i just got better and better at it and uh, i still like it and i'm still competing and I still hope I can go uh, yeah, for a few years and try and uh, improve some PBs, get some uh, national titles, participate at some, well, perhaps a European championship. So it's uh, still going well. 
Nice, yeah. So, um, as you said, you have done research in a lot of a lot of different topics, uh, more or less related to running. And and I I looked through your ResearchGate profile and your publications, and and I picked a few topics that I want to basically ask you for a bit of an overview about. And they are all related to some things that you have published. And so, I guess the first one that I wanted to start with was about cooldowns. Uh, so, can you? Just give an overview of uh, the research that you did there and, and what you found, and then give some practical recommendations for the listeners. Yeah, of course. So perhaps it's nice to also start with why I did that. This is a review I did, so like a, a very extensive review. And it's also something from my own practical background as an athlete. And I used to also do some certain conditioning coaching. And then, of course, a lot of people and uh, coaches, they just regularly do a cool down, uh, including myself. And at some point, I was just wondering, do we actually have any evidence that cooldowns are effective? Because everyone's saying you should do a cooldown because you recover better, you perform better. Uh, but I was just wondering about the scientific evidence. And I just yeah, started working on a review, and it turned out to be quite nice. So eventually, they decided to submit it for publication. Um, but also something I found out during the review, during the whole process, is that if you have a simple question like, do we recover faster, it's actually quite tricky to try and answer that question because what do we do we find as recovery, for example? There are many metrics that we can measure to sort of define recovery. We can just ask people, do you feel better uh, after a cooldown, which is a subjective measure of recovery. We can ask them, do you feel less muscle soreness, which is also somehow a subjective measure. Uh, we can also try and get more objective measures such as actual muscle damage from biopsies. We can measure lactate and blood or muscle tissue, hormone concentrations. There's a lot of things we can measure. Um, and then if we uh, summarize all those findings, which was quite surprising to me, we actually don't really see very pronounced benefits on all of these objective uh, metrics uh, if you do a cool down as compared to not doing any uh, cool down after exercise. Um and of course, we also looked at some other metrics such as performance, which is sort of a more overarching metric that incorporates all these uh, yeah, different objective measures that would influence in the end, of course, also recovery. And there also we saw sort of similar effects. So we separated performance or we looked at performance in two different ways. So we looked at same day performance and next day performance. So same day performance is something that's mostly relevant for elite athletes that would be performing multiple training sessions or competitions on the same day. And what we saw there is that, again, the most likely effect was that there is no beneficial effect of doing a cool down on same day performance if that's going to happen, let's say, four hours later. Um, and if any effect is going to happen, it's most likely to be going to uh, be negative. So our recommendation there is, well, it's probably going to be just too much extra effort if you would do a cool down. If you have to perform again on the same day, it's probably better not to do a cool down because you either have no benefit or it's going to be a negative uh, effect. And for next day performance, again, we saw it's most likely to not have any effects. Uh, but uh, well, also some uh, indications that it might for some individuals have a slight positive effect. So there you could argue, well, if it's not going to harm you, it might have some uh, slight benefits. Um, so some other markers we looked at are um, uh, adaptive response. So we know from quite some other recovery modalities, such as cold water immersion, and also if you uh, use a lot of uh, vitamins, vitamin C specifically, that you are actually suppressing your um, sort of adaptive signaling pathways. And we were wondering if something similar might happen during a cool down. So theoretically, if you would improve recovery, you might take away some of the adaptive response for the body to uh, yeah, increase strength, for example, increase endurance uh, adaptations. But we actually saw a trend towards the opposite there. So if people regularly did a cool down, they actually uh, improved their performance slightly more which is sort of a good way because then it means if you do a cool down, you just get in a bit extra volume, for example, which might improve your performance. But it also suggests that what we're actually doing is not really helping us recover better. It's just extra training, essentially, which is sort of supporting what we've been finding uh, in the review so far. Um, yeah. that's, that's kind of, from, from a practical perspective, that's the way I've been thinking about it, uh, even before reading uh, your review that, like, I don't. I haven't seen cooldowns in themselves providing extra value, but it's just like 
you have a certain amount of volume that you want to achieve and and if you go for example and want to do a workout on the track let's take my personal example i live about 12 minutes from the track i can run to the track do a little bit of extra warm-up getting 20 minutes of warming up do a workout on the track and then run home and uh and then i get my let's say one hour or one hour 10 minute minute run but if i wanted to do it if i wanted to just i don't know take a taxi home instead and uh, over time that adds up to doing less volume than so so it's not so much the that the cool itself is helping me but the extra volume that i'm getting in is is helping yeah exactly I, i'm doing exactly the same so i also run to the track do my track workout and then i just make an extra loop uh, a little bit to have some extra mileage in but it's not really because i'm thinking i'm recovering better because i know from the research but just uh, for extra mileage indeed yeah yeah uh, and uh, but then it's interesting to look at the uh, another example which would be cycling then so i have some workouts that are just like let's say high intensity intervals and uh and i'm perfectly happy to do a high intensity interval session and then finish with no cool down basically if i do something like 10 by two minutes on two minutes off then the final two minutes off is the only thing i do i don't do 10 minutes extra easy riding afterwards necessarily i do sometimes when i just need want the volume but i but i don't have to do it if i have one hour to do a workout and and the workout is scheduled to finish on one hour yeah, and I think that's an important one because in my experience, a lot of people have, of course, a very limited time period during which they can do a workout. And then I, I don't think they should be devoting, like, let's say, 15 minutes to a cool down because they can then better probably use their time to just do, let's say you have an hour to do just do I don't know, 55 minutes of uh, just work, basically. And then you might do a five minute cool down just to well, basically just uh, sweat out a little bit. And so you're not sweating uh, while you're stepping into the shower or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, the evidence doesn't really support that we should be doing like a very extensive cool down to then make sure we recover better for a next session because that's not going to happen, uh, at least not for most people. Right, yeah. So let's move on to the next topic, uh, which I think is also very uh, interesting and relevant for a lot of people, especially now as we're heading into winter, which is treadmill versus outdoor running. So this is another area where you've done quite a bit of research, both looking at things like uh, the how speed is is or is not equivalent between the two and, and things like how the running biomechanics might be different. So can you give us an overview again of what is the work that you've done there and what are the practical applications? Yeah, of course. So again, it's motivated by the same idea, which is a lot of coaches, athletes, uh, they're just commenting like you shouldn't run on treadmill because then you have to push off less. Or if you do run on a treadmill, you put it on a 1% incline to make sure you have the same physiological stimulus, essentially. Uh, so again, something I found interesting to delve into the literature to see uh, what's supported there and what, uh, what isn't. So if we start with the physiology, so we did an extensive review there and something I found quite interesting as well that we found is there is just one study among, I don't know, 20 studies that we might have included, I don't know the exact number, that showed if you put the treadmill to 1% incline, you better match the physiological demands with treadmill running compared to overground running. So the oxygen consumption is specifically what we're talking about. But these other 19 studies, they actually found you get the same effect in uh, treadmill running, so the same physiological stimulus if you just put a treadmill uh, inclination to 0%, so no uh, gradient at all. Um, so our recommendation, therefore, is also that you actually don't need to put the treadmill inclination to 1%, and you can just keep it to 0%, and then you have the same physiological demand as compared to off-grad running. And then some listeners might wonder, well, doesn't that depend on speed? So the faster you run over ground, of course, the more wind resistance or wind drag you have. And of course, that's correct. Uh, we also did what is called a meta aggression analysis to see if the effect would change with increases in speed. But at least up to speeds up to 16 kilometers per hour, we didn't find that a 1% incline would be better than a 0% inclination. So our suggestion again is if you're a recreational runner, which might be running up to say something like 16 kilometers per hour, it's probably not required to put the treadmill inclination to 1% and you can just leave it to 0% because that will give you the same uh, physiological demand as you would have in off-ground running. Yeah, 16 kilometers an hour, that would be roughly, I think off the top of my head, 345 per kilometer, more or less, something like that? Uh, yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so it's for listeners, it's about uh, one, 118, 119 half marathon, uh, 
pace some so in that region if you're if you're below that then then that would um yeah you would fall in that category of not being affected uh, that is really interesting because i have uh, for a long time been of the belief that uh yeah you you want to have a one percent grade so so i learned something new there for sure um what about the uh, the biomechanics is there any any difference there um there are very small, subtle differences. So again, we also did meta analysis, which is essentially just statistically summarizing all of the evidence that has been uh, yeah, conducted to date. And we, we found some very small differences, but they're so small that we are really unsure if they're relevant at all. So just to give an example for contact time, if I remember correctly, it was longer I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it was longer by five milliseconds on a uh, treadmill as compared to all-ground running. And a normal contact time is, let's say, for a recreational runner might be 250, 280 milliseconds. So it's a really small difference that you have on a treadmill. And it's within the sort of typical error of measurement that we actually have within most me- measurements. So if we would measure someone twice with a different device, we would also have such a difference. So and we see sort of similar effects for most of these outcomes which suggests, indeed, if you're running on a treadmill, it's in most situations, essentially, it provides the same biomechanics as compared to overground running. But there are some situations in which your running technique, your running biomechanics might be a bit different. Um, and there are two primary factors for this. One is that you're not accustomed to treadmill running, and we provide some also some guidelines based on the evidence there that if you just which is mostly re- relevant for physios, I guess, but if you would do a gait analysis, so an analysis of running technique on a treadmill, it might help to give people at least eight minutes of uh, time to get just used to the treadmill because then we see that the running kinematics, uh, so running technique, um, essentially gets very close to what they're using overground. And if you would be measuring it, it would in the first minute, for example, people are still getting used to the treadmill, and then you might observe from... Yes, some differences in technique on the treadmill that are not, not actually reflective of overground running. Um, so just give sufficient time uh, to get accustomed to the treadmill. So that would be my first advice. And then a second one, which is a bit more tricky to match, is the stiffness of the treadmill. So we also did a very uh, big study where we investigated this, the surface stiffness of the, the belt, essentially, and compared the treadmill surface stiffness to other overground surfaces, just uh, such as concrete, where most people are running, but also to a track or artificial turf. And then we found that most treadmills have a surface stiffness that's much more comparable to artificial turf uh, as compared to... Uh, Concrete, so so they're basically not as stiff as concrete, for example. And we know that the body is quite smart. If you run on a very stiff surface, your body will decrease the leg stiffness. And if you run on a very compliant stiffness, your body will increase the leg stiffness. So by manipulating or by um, because the surface stiffness of the treadmills is a bit different to the typical concrete surface, of course, then the overground or the treadmill uh, running biomechanics might also differ slightly. So if you would want treadmill to be a perfect match of your overground concrete surface, of course, you would need to buy a treadmill with a very stiff and rigid surface, which are typically the very expensive clinical ones. And if you just go to the typical gyms, they don't have a really rigid surface. So it's a bit more compliant. So of course, that's also then going to influence uh, the way in which you run. Yeah. So what would you say in practical terms um, for you or for if you're consulting with an athlete or coaching an athlete, um, do you recommend treadmill running depending on things like weather or what type of workout they, they're doing if they don't have access to a track, for example? Or yeah, what what, what can the listeners take away? Yeah. So the biomechanics suggests indeed you don't need to push off less, for example, on a treadmill. That's also a common myth. If you wouldn't, you just would be drawn away, drawn to the back with the treadmill. So you have to push off uh, to an equal amount. Some subtle things there that we can discuss another time. I guess that's not too relevant for the listener. So overall, you can just say you have to push up uh, to an equal amount. The energy cost is also approximately equal, uh, at least at these lower speeds. So you don't need to put the treadmill to this 1% incline. So you can just run normally on the treadmill essentially and then it's going to be an effective stimulus indeed physiologically and biomechanically very similar to what you would have in overground running so from that perspective it's indeed quite an effective tool if it's rainy outside or if it's snowing whatever is dark to train on the treadmill um, 
I don't think there's research to support this, but my personal guess is that it's probably not going to learn you to pace as well as overground running because you just set the pace and you keep running and overground running, you have to pace yourself a bit more essentially. Um, so there I wouldn't recommend it. So overall, I think if you just alternate it with overground running, it might actually be quite a nice tool to still get in the mileage. Um, it might help you to control intensities to some extent a little bit better. So if uh, for like the Norwegian methods or threshold training, you can just uh, get lactate measurements on the treadmill. You can just have the equipment next to you. So these are some sort of practical considerations that would also help uh, in a treadmill setting. Um, so for, yeah, for some workouts, indeed, it might actually be quite handy to uh, use a treadmill. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think one one problem that you have in some workouts, especially if you have active recoveries between harder intervals and maybe longer intervals as well with treadmill running is that uh, I, depending on the gym as well, of course, and the ventilation, the core body temperature can get quite high when when you don't have uh, the um, the cooling that you have when when you're actually moving or you have air moving around you. So so that's that's one thing that I found personally at least that if I'm doing longer intervals with shorter recoveries and the recoveries are jogs rather than passive recoveries i tend to overheat so i prefer to do those kinds of workouts outdoors if i have a chance but shorter intervals with passive recoveries are are fine to do from a body temperature core body temperature perspective as well on the treadmill but that's something to consider depending on i think the ventilation and uh and temperature of the gym that you're in yeah absolutely agree and also just the speed of some treadmills can take at least it feels long to get to a certain speed if you're running at 20 kilometers per hour might take a few seconds to get there and sometimes you just want to get up that speed in a few steps as well yeah yeah definitely uh all right so let's move on to the topic of older athletes you have a couple of interesting case studies with uh actually some world-class older athletes uh, that have achieved world records in things like middle distance running so can you tell us a bit more about that yeah, we're quite lucky actually to have two world-class master athletes just living sort of next door uh, to the university here. And I've always wanted to investigate them and perhaps we can still do that uh, sort of longitudinally. Uh, but at some point we just decided, okay, let's measure them and just see if we can see some exceptional physiological um, parameters that you would expect, of course, for their age uh, performances. So one of the athletes we were measuring is uh, it's called Hans Mates. He's a 75-year-old, at least at the time we were doing the measurements, uh, athlete. And he has multiple world records at his uh, 70 plus, 75 uh, uh, plus uh, eight-year groups in the, the middle-long distances, so 800 meters uh, most prominently. Um, and the second athlete we were measuring is uh, it's called Joost Schoenbrood. He's uh, 71 at the time of the measurements. And he's a uh, marathon runner, and also ultra marathon runner. So they're quite a bit uh, different distances, but both of them are runners. And, and can you let us know what what are the world records for the eight hundred uh, in the first case and the marathon in the in the second case? To be honest, I, I don't know from the top of my head. I would need to oh, okay. check. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, um, I'll put the I'll put the link to the papers in the show notes so listeners can go and go and have a look and I'll maybe I'll try to look it up and 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 read it out in the in the outro of this episode after the interview. That will, yeah, I think they're mentioned in the paper, so that should be uh, able to find uh, find it there. And if you can yeah. find them, that will be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So do go on. Uh, what what did you find about uh, their physiologies? Um, so if we start with Hans Mate, so we found at 75 years of age, he still had a view to max of 50.5 milliliters per kilo per minute. So that's the highest view to max we ever recorded or anyone ever recorded at that age. So of course, that's sort of something you would expect for a world class athlete, but it's still really impressive to see those numbers at that age. And also, I guess for some people quite comforting that with sufficient training you might still uh, achieve those numbers at that age so i think that's uh, something also for me i'm looking out for the long run if i can uh, sort of maintain my view to max at those numbers uh, at that age as well uh, then we also found for hans he has uh, quite a large anaerobic speed reserve so essentially capability to increase his running speed above his view to max running speed which is also probably one of the reasons why he is so good at the 800 meters where you are running a lot with uh, yeah, above your V2 max or around your, uh, your V2 max speed. And you have to have this yeah, acceleration capability in the last 200 meters, for example. So that's, uh, again, supporting why he is so good. 
And for Yo, we looked at some slightly different metrics. So we also measured his VO2 max, and I think that was 46.9, if I remember correctly. So also very high for that age uh, group still. Not the highest value ever recorded, but again, it's something you might also not really expect for a marathon runner. Instead, what we found was that his uh, efficiency, so running economies, was very exceptional. So I'm not saying it's the best value ever recorded, but it was uh, very a low oxygen cost so it is also probably in combination with this uh, still quite high v2 max value explaining why he has been able to break the world record um, what's quite interesting there is also we compared his values to the previous world record holder which some uh, uh, i think canadian uh, colleagues measured and indeed we saw the v2 max was quite similar but the running economy from you was quite uh, substantially better which might be explained by his uh, high running volume so he is training in the, the lead up to the marathon about 140 kilometers per week so that's a huge training volume for someone of 70 plus years of age it's actually something we see in athletes at the, their peak age around the 2030s uh, so that's probably one of the reasons also why he has such an exceptional running economy and exceptional performance in general um, and Another notable finding for both athletes, actually, was that they're very consistent with the training. I think that's one of the key findings that we found. So if we look at Hans, for example, in the last 25 years, he mentioned he didn't uh, train long, like he didn't miss training for longer than a week. So he has been training 25 years, essentially, in a row, which is incredible to think of. And for Yo, he uh, also trained a huge amount. And in the two years leading up to the marathon uh, world record performance, he trained every single day. So again, showing the importance of consistency. So they're not doing any crazy stuff in terms of um, their track interval sessions or just hit sessions. They do some hit sessions, but not uh, crazy intensities. They just make sure whatever they do, they can maintain consistently. Uh, and I think that's one of the key factors that also has allowed him to you know, perform that well at such an uh, such an age especially because we know from some studies that at these older ages if you get injured performance tends to decrease quite fast so then if you would get an injury it's quite difficult to get back up to that level but if you can keep training consistently i think that really helps to ensure uh, performance at that age level yeah, uh, 140 kilometers for was it 71 years old? That is that, that is absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. Um, but but I think that's this is where triathletes a lot of of course we have some runners listening as well. But most of the audience is triathletes. They have an advantage in that they can get away with doing less running because they're also swimming and and cycling. So you can still get a, a really good training volume, but maybe with less of the injury risk because most of the injury injury risk comes from from running because it's yeah. so high high impact um yeah is there is there anything else that you would say any other conclusions from those case studies or or, or general practical recommendations for older athletes um well perhaps one other interesting one is that both athletes started quite late with their running so from yo i remember the exact age it was 36 um and from hans i don't remember the exact one but it was also like later during his uh, lifetime so that suggests it's never too late to get started because now they're both world-class athletes, but they started only quite late. So you could argue perhaps it's because they started a bit later that they're now world-class athletes, which is also something we've been discussing with them. And one of the, the factors you could argue there is that because they started later, they don't have they don't have any times from their peak uh, age years. So they can't be comparing, like I used to run four minutes per kilometer on my endurance run, and now I'm running like five minutes, or I used to run, you know, 29 minutes on a 10k whatever um so that might help them with just maintaining motivation um but anyway i think it's just nice to see that you can start at any age and still um yeah perform very well and perhaps even exceptionally well such as these individuals as long as you're just consistent with training and uh, not doing uh, too much crazy stuff i guess Mm, yeah uh, that's a really interesting point uh about starting later and uh i guess for people that did start early or whenever you started just trying to mentally be okay with um yeah just performing at the level that you are right now and not thinking too much about what you what you did before whenever you whenever you started um yeah. so the next 
topic uh, is, uh, I guess, on the opposite side of the spectrum. So there is this concept, and I'll let you explain it, of uh, like sensitive periods in training and long-term athlete, the long-term athlete development model is one that has used that concept. So can you can you describe what what we mean by that, both the sensitive periods and long-term athlete development model, and then we'll get into some follow-up questions around that. Yeah, sure. The so let's start with the sensitive periods, perhaps. So, and then I have to, to, to give sufficient credit. I have to get, go back to the biology uh, research where they have been looking into this in singing birds, for example. And there they showed if you have a certain age within these birds, and then if they hear certain songs from their uh, parents, for example, they learn these songs. But uh, if they reach a certain age and haven't heard these songs, then they aren't able to learn these songs at a later age. So that suggests there is some sensitive, or in that case, actually critical periods, uh, during which you need to have a certain experience. And if you haven't had that experience, you can't really learn it uh, or you can't even learn it anymore uh, after that uh, certain age. And this concept has been transferred a little bit as well into um, humans and athletic development. Um, and it's also been influenced by some uh, some other research findings, which is just natural development. So some studies have been investigating how we naturally improve in performance in certain skills so for example how does vertical jump performance improve just without any training naturally due to grow the maturation in uh, people age seven eight nine ten years of age etc and the same for grip strength um, for flexibility measures etc and there we also see some variation so as an example um, speeds just sprint speed 10 meter sprint speed might increase most rapidly from ages 7 to 9 in boys for example and based on such observations so the natural increases in speed or these these let's say basic uh, uh, motor abilities and this evidence from uh, animals that are certain critical periods it has been hypothesized that we also have so-called sensitive periods during which we are extra sensitive to certain stimuli during the development. And if we then would do certain training stimuli, such as agility training, speed training, endurance training, flexibility training, that we would uh, have um, large improvements during these time periods, so during these specific ages, and thereby improve performance on the long run. So that's a bit the concept, which has also been applied in the LTAD model, so the long-term athlete development model, which is one of the most common, uh, well-known models, I guess, to uh, structure on, on how to structure athletic development in children and youth. And they suggest that for boys, for example, I think they, they propose two sensitive periods. I don't know the exact numbers, so I'm going to be guessing a little bit. I think it's from seven to nine years, they suggest there is a sensitive period to train speed. So if you would do a lot of speed training, you would, in the long run, uh, be better in speed uh, sports. And there is another sensitive period from, I think it's 13 to 16 years, where, again, there is this sensitive period for speed. And then they propose some different uh, sensitive periods as well for flexibility, for strength, for endurance, uh, etc. Now, I found that quite interesting when I was first uh, reading such a concept. I think as well, of course, everyone wants to know something like this. If you can have extra gains by essentially doing the same thing, just at a slightly different time period. So it's quite interesting. But again, I couldn't find any evidence in the LTED model or some of the other um, national governmental models that have implemented also these sensitive periods in their models. So I started uh, quite a extensive literature just to see, can I find any evidence somewhere to support the existence of such uh, sensitive periods? But instead of actually finding support, I only found more and more evidence that it's quite a tricky concept, actually, as it's being applied in these uh, models. So one of the issues we sort of identified within our paper is that we know sports performance is quite complex. It's integrating psychological, certain uh, phys uh, physical, so biomechanical factors. Um, and you can try and get an estimation of all these factors by trying to, to isolate them. So if we would do a squat, we could say with the squat, we are measuring strength, which is contributing to our sports performance. If we do some sit and reach tests, we are... Um, we, we might think we are assessing flexibility and therefore that might also contribute to a performance. And if we do a Cooper test or whatever, we might measure our endurance. So essentially we are trying to get 
very specific measures of sport performance, which is quite complex. Now, the issue there is that these models are also trying to um, use such a, which is called reductionist approach, where you try and isolate different components of performance. And then subsequently, they assume that strength, for example, that you might have in a squat is different from sprint performance. And sprint performance is different from agility performance. And then they assume again that you therefore have different underlying, um, let's say, neural as well and uh, neural components that are maturing, developing, and that are more sensitive to uh, experience. But the, the issue there is a bit that there are no separate neural components that are contributing to strength performance or sprint performance. We have a slightly different within our brain, for example, and also within a muscle, slightly different coordination that we're using, but it's not a completely different system. So we don't have a system for strength. We don't have a system for speed. We don't have a system for coordination. It's all within the same system. So then proposing that we have sensitive periods for these different systems is also, yeah, it doesn't really make sense uh, actually. And that's also what we found within our review that we we didn't actually find any support that these sensitive periods as proposed in these papers are actually also yeah, backed up by any uh, research. And I think there is even one paper, which is quite nice, where they showed that if you train speed within the proposed sensitive period, and then it's, of course, a very specific way of training speed that was actually less effective than training speeds at a younger or an even slightly older age. So again, sort of debunking that whole sensitive periods uh, issue. So I guess there's a lot more to discuss there, but I hope that provides the essence of what we've been uh, delving into a bit. Yeah, it, it makes me think about the analogy with just like the general periodization models that we have, that it's we we always want to have some kind of nice pathway or template that, to follow. And, and it's nice to think that if we do, let's say, the traditional periodization base work first, and then we gradually increase intensity and, and reduce volume when we get close to the races, then that, that's the best way to train. But now I think we also know that, well, it's really not that simple. And, and it's not, uh, again, as you say, it's reductionist and trying to isolate dif- different things that are just inherently related i guess so so it's <laughs> but it, it does make me think that yeah i of course i understand why why people came up with with that kind of concept because it's the same reason that we came up with periodization models in the first place um, yeah. but i guess we shouldn't i guess the, the point is that that we shouldn't necessarily when it comes to young athletes uh kids uh, that my parents might be listening to this and think oh how should my my child develop if they want to be a be an athlete and and i guess the point is that well maybe not get hung up on uh, there being an optimal way of doing things and maybe just having fun and not overdoing things is is, is as best as we can do at this point exactly and i think that's also one of the things we're arguing so even if these models propose you should do speed training at a certain age they don't provide information on how to do that speed training. Of course, we know that's going to impact also the effectiveness of such a method. And even if you shouldn't do, let's say, coordination training at a certain age, if you're doing speed training, so sprints, or if you're doing strength training, such as squats, you're also training coordination. So you can't really isolate these these abilities anyway. So indeed, like you mentioned, I wouldn't bother too much. And we, we, we are training, we are always training everything. We can put a bit more emphasis on certain bi- basic motor abilities, if you like. But I wouldn't be too focused on these uh, sensitive periods indeed. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's move on to the next topic, uh, strength and conditioning. Uh, so yeah, this is again an area where you've done uh, some, some dif- several reviews, I think you've done. One of them was about how to manipulate the set structures of your strength training and how that impacts the adaptations to resistance training. So uh, can we start there? What did you find with, with that paper? Yeah, so this is a nice uh, paper led by Ivan Jukic, a colleague uh, from New Zealand. And what we did there is traditionally the way by which people program strength training is they do, let's say, three sets, and then you have per set five repetitions, and then you do those five repetitions. You take three minutes of rest, you do again five repetitions, three minutes of rest, and five repetitions. Um, So all the rest is just between sets. 
And what we've been looking at here is uh, the effect of what if you would, within each set, uh, set, also take some additional rest. So that would mean instead of doing all five repetitions uh, after each other, you would do um, three repetitions, then take a minute of rest, and then do the last two repetitions. So that would be the, the cluster training idea. And that might be something you can do in squatting, but also weightlifting and jumping, um, and different kind of strength training exercises. And what we saw there is uh, that for some outcomes, such as jump performance, or let's say the more explosive-related outcomes, um, indeed, we see that this cluster training or rest uh, redistribution training, where you essentially just extend also the entire training duration, um, is more beneficial than the traditional uh, set structure manipulation, where you, you do just the five repetitions or how many you have uh, after each other without any rest in between them. And the mechanism there, the idea is that, of course, if you give some rest in between these repetitions, your uh, neuromuscular system recovers a bit faster. And therefore, these last two reps, for example, within the five uh, uh, rep example, you can perform them in a slightly higher, higher power output, a slightly higher rate of force development. And therefore, you also train these neuromuscular qualities at a slightly um yeah, you just train them slightly better. And therefore, in the long run, you also have better adaptations, which is also what we found in, uh, with our uh, first review there. And uh, in this case, should the weight lifted be basically as, as high as you can lift for, for it to be effective? And that's why the extra recovery makes sense, because then, yeah, you can probably increase the weight a little bit compared to if you did all five uh, consecutively. Yeah, so I guess from an endurance perspective, I would anyway recommend indeed just heavy weights to be used so and there it's probably indeed and also beneficial to um, use some of this uh, cluster training where indeed you could opt just like i mentioned you, you might do five reps and then you do the first three then you take a minute of a rest period then you do the last two and then instead of taking uh, four minutes of rest between the sets you might actually just do three minutes because you already have taken that one minute of rest what you normally would take between the sets within your set and again you could do different manipulations there so you could also say if i normally i take four minutes of rest between uh, my sets i now take two minutes of that rest within my sets uh, so then i have two minutes left between the sets or I just maintain it at the same uh, uh, interset rest. So you could also keep it at four minutes, but of course that means your entire training duration will be extended. So it depends a bit on how much uh, rest you have. Mm, yeah, all right. And uh, yeah, so among all of the, let's give some general recommendations because I know you've done a lot of a lot of studies. So we're not going to get into the details of all of them, but just in terms of the practical applications, um, you said that heavyweight for endurance athletes. Um, what else would you say if you're again consulting with somebody or coaching somebody? How would you structure a typical uh, strength training session for them? What? How many exercises? How how many sets and and reps roughly? And uh, any other tips that you would give? Yeah, so I like to keep my um, strength training exercises typically within maximum one hour. So that gives me the first sort of restriction on wh which exercise to include and the time duration. And that typically means I include something like three, four different exercises. And typically I have two, let's say, heavy resistance training exercises. And then I have one or two plyometric, uh, more oriented exercises. And it differs a, a bit between like sessions and stuff, but that's like, my very generic uh, answer. Uh, and then we know, for example, for the heavy resistance training exercises, um, we know for tendons, which is a very important adaptation that we're training with resistance uh, training, that we need to load them very heavy, uh, typically above 85%, 90% of the maximum voluntary contraction to achieve sufficient strain, which then leads to tendon adaptations, which is beneficial for both injury prevention in the tendon and also performance enhancement. Uh, so improving running economy, for example. Um, and what I therefore typically uh, recommend is to use um, a weight that you can lift perhaps six times but then lift it until the fifth repetition so you have one repetition left uh, in reserve essentially so you're not trained to muscle failure which we know tends to evoke slightly more hypertrophy which we want to avoid as endurance athletes but we still get the same let's say neuromuscular stimulus uh, strength adaptations 
which of course is what we want. Um, so that's what I'm doing for these heavy resistance exercises. And then typically I'm just using three up to sometimes four sets. Uh, and then I complement it with some uh, plyometric exercises such as box jumps, drop jumps, uh, etc. With the resistance exercises, do you have any guidance around, um, let's say, lifting explosively or at least with explosive intent, the speed of the lift, essentially? Yeah, indeed. I'm using the intent to lift as explosively as possible. So, of course, that might mean with a heavy weight, you're still lifting very slowly in terms of velocity. But at least the intent is there to just make the concentric phase as fast as possible. And then the eccentric or lowering phase is typically like two, three seconds. And would the exercises uh, be uh, or a mix of uh, double-legged and uh, single-legged exercises, or or would you have a preference for one over the other? I tend to do mostly sort of single-leg stuff, but it's, again, there is a reason for both. So for double-leg, we can just provide a little bit more overload in some exercises. It's a little bit more less specific, but for uh, the single-leg stuff, it might be slightly less overload and a little bit more specific. Uh, but I tend to find that if you're, let's say, trained enough to some of these single leg exercises, there is not really a strong trade-off between how much uh, weight you like can extra lift with a double leg exercise. So that's why I'm typically preferring a single leg exercise, such as a split step squat, for example. But with a deadlift, I find it quite tricky to do like a single leg or deadlift, something like this. So there I'm still using like a double leg deadlift. So it depends a little bit, I guess, also on the exercise I'm using. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so if we have somebody that they can go to the gym twice a week, then maybe you can fit in, let's say, four of those resistance exercises, two in one session and two in the other. So if you can pick for like a generic template example of four, your four favorite resistance exercises that you would give to an athlete, uh, what would those be? Um, probably, I guess, a, a single leg squat. So I wouldn't start super heavy, but eventually, ideally, I would want to go very heavy there just to make sure we're training uh, in terms of performance or training the glutes, for example, the quads, which we know from some recent research is a very effective exercise specifically for the glutes, for example, just to increase neural activation there, the voluntary activation and also for the quads. We're training also the patella tendon, which is also in a sort of injury location that we might see in some of the endurance athletes. So it's both a performance enhancement and injury preventative exercise. Then I guess another one I would like to include is it's super simple, but it's just a sort of calf raise uh, isometrically. Uh, also, again, very heavy loaded just to make sure we're training specifically the Achilles tendon, which like a lot of research supports has a very important role in the total running economy and also in terms of uh, Achilles tendon injury prevention. So again, from both perspectives, that's quite an important exercise to include. Uh, then I probably would include also some plyometric exercises, which we also know from research to be effective, uh, mostly at improving performance. So that would be some drop jumps or uh, jumps to boxes, again, with maximum intent. Um, and then I might include some additional exercise that it could be, depending on the phase of the season, perhaps a deadlift, again, very heavy deadlift, or perhaps a step up. All right, perfect. Uh, so then the final topic for today is around devices and technology. So uh, you already mentioned working with one of them, an insole, and uh, you have done quite a f- few bits and pieces with researching re- various things like smartwatches and uh, uh cardiopulmonary exercise testing equipment and uh, DFA Alpha 1 and, and lots, lots of other things. So as a general question around technology and devices and, and wearables, uh, which of them do you think are genuinely useful for amateur runners and triathletes and can contribute to improving training and performance and recovery and things like that? Yeah, I get that question a lot, but I, I keep finding it a tricky question because I, I never know really which ones... In, in general, I would recommend. And, and the reason is that as a researcher, I know for a lot of equipment how accurate they are, for example, which is for a lot of equipment where you would expect it to be accurate, it's quite inaccurate, actually. So that's the first reason why I'm not too much fan of using a lot of these wearables. And then for some of the wearables where we know they're like at least reasonably accurate, then my question is always, do we really know where where we should go with the data. So what's beneficial or what are the 
thresholds, for example, being used within those wearables to consider like now it's good, now now it isn't good. And from the research for biomechanical stuff, for example, I, I know we don't have those thresholds. So then my question is always, well, okay, now I can measure this very accurately, which is nice, but how does it help me? I, I still don't know what's good, what's not good. So that's a bit what I find tricky. Uh, but to come back a bit more to your question, so where I do think it's useful for recreational runners is simply just a heart rate belt uh, because there is also some anecdotal evidence to support it. If you just instruct a recreational runner to go easy or to go hard, some people don't really know what's easy or what's hard. And there, a heart rate belt might help them to give a bit more calibration, basically, to that feeling. So then they can get that feedback. Okay, now it's actually the feeling I'm having now that's being supported as being hard or actually as being easy. Uh, so I think that's quite useful. Um, just in general, I think like a watch that measures your distance and speed and uh, pace, that's quite useful as well, just to keep track of those metrics. So you can also, with a training schedule, keep a bit more track of what you're actually doing. Um, let's see something else. Um, ideally, something that tells you also specifically for you, I guess, how hard you're running. So are you running below your first ventilator, ventilatory threshold or above the, the second one, for example, or below the second one? So we, we know that it has also quite some pronounced effects on fatigue, for example. So from that perspective, it could be quite interesting, which is where initially I explored uh, the usability of the, the trend of fluctuation analysis uh, alpha one. Um, and then... Ideally, I guess, but we don't really have that wearable net uh, wearable yet. We're working on this is something that also tells you your uh, mechanical loading. So in addition to getting some kind of feedback on, let's say, metabolic loading, you also would want, at least I would want a, a wearable that tells me my mechanical loading on different tissues that are commonly injured. And then ideally also tells me, well, you've now been running so long with this intensity so now now actually might be good to take a day off or at least to perform your next day run a bit easier because you have accumulated so much load or damage on your achilles tendon and we know from like a huge database or from your previous experiences that this is going to increase your risk of injury substantially so it's best to take like a day off but it's not there yet but i guess that's something i also would think could be it could be very interesting for uh, starters as well so for you right now, uh, I, I assume you use a watch and you use a heart rate monitor. Do you use anything else uh, that, of, yeah, for example, with that knowing your intensity, uh, do you use something in your day-to-day -day, or is it more that every once in a while you do some kind of testing to, to figure it out? And uh, yeah, we can start there. Yeah, there's also something, I guess, as a scientist, a lot of people expect me to do, like to use a lot of fancy equipment to and to do a lot of testing. But actually, I'm not doing that at all. And I guess one of the reasons is because I'm just too busy to do a lot of those testings. So that's actually probably the primary reason. Uh, but also because a lot of things I've tried in the past in terms of wearables, then I just tend to notice, at least for myself, is that they're not really providing any additional benefits. So uh, as an example, even a heart rate monitor, I've been using it and I still use it occasionally um, during my runs. But then I just find out after run, I just look at my heart rate, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's it's high during my intervals and it's a bit lower after my intervals, okay? But, like, I, I don't need a heart rate belt to tell me this. And it, it, sometimes in, in the past, then I'm just trying to check, you know, on days where I felt a bit subjectively um, less fit, for example, then my heart rate also tended to be slightly higher, for example, or lower in some, some occasions as well. And I guess in the beginning, it has helped me to gain a little bit of insight into, again, just be um, aware of some of these feelings. So just calibrating your feeling again. But at some point it was just, yeah, it, it didn't provide any additional benefit. And it's the same with the, the D-trend of fluctuation analysis, for example, being also trying this out. But there the issue is it's not really working well consistently during running. Quite a bit of technical challenges during the bike. It might be a bit better. Uh, but that's something I, I keep finding out with a lot of these technologies then it's interesting for like a few sessions but then i'm like okay now I've, I've gotten sort of that insight but now how can it still be providing me with any extra value um i should know there that i think that's 
partly because um, I'm just training a lot. I've been training for years, and then you just know your body quite well by then. So for some recreational athletes, I've been discussing before, some of these wearables might be at least usable or yeah for, for longer time periods. But if you're training at like a sort of high level for a long time period, I think you know your, your body quite well. And there, I think the added benefit of such wearables, at least in my opinion, becomes much lower. And also I'm training myself. So I, I know exactly what I've been doing, how I've been feeling. But if I would be training someone else or if I would have a coach, then I can imagine it's also much more useful to have those wearables because then you have some you know, more objective data to share with anyone. And then you can make some more informed decisions based on this. But because I'm training myself, I just, I've, I've been feeling how I feel. And I don't need to like to have some other tool to tell me this uh, again. So Again, I would like to have some tools at some point that provide me with, with very specific information. Where am I running in terms of my thresholds and what's the mechanical loading? But I'm not sure we are at that point yet that we have a wearable that or separate wearables that can do this with the accuracy that I would want it to be, actually. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to clarify. Like, if you think that if 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 these devices is something that you're currently using because they are there and they're good enough, but it, it sounds like that's that's not really the case. So it's more of a, a wish list for maybe we will get there in the in the next few years. But yeah, I completely agree with with what you say there. Uh, but but I think as you said there at the end, with if you have a coach, then uh, I, I can speak as a coach. I I would like to see heart rate and pace and RPE from from all the training then even if i don't necessarily want the athlete to look at their watch if they're doing an easy run or an easy bike ride they can just go out and do it but to have to have it to look at it is helpful because then when you can triangulate those three uh heart rate and pace slash power and rp then then you can basically get you get 99 of the uh, of the information from those three variables i think yeah, I fully um, agree. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps j- just to add that, I think if you have sufficient time, then I think combining uh, at least some of the accurate wearables that might, you know, would be, perhaps we don't know how they might be used, but at least by measuring them over a long time period, you, we might gain some insights into what would be working good for performance, what's not working good. But it just takes a lot of time and that's i guess one of the reasons why i'm not using anything now because i just don't have the time to measure all these things consistently and then well especially to take a look back and try and see figure out where like did i go wrong or could have improved a bit more exactly no definitely and uh just one one more follow-up you mentioned that dfa alpha one might work better on the bike but i I actually tried it quite relatively recently maybe a year ago on the bike and even on the indoor trainer where it should be the most accurate because there's no uh outside uh i guess disturbance uh you're in the same position and you know you have constant light and and all of that so but it it didn't even work there for me with uh, the the technology set that i used at least so so i quickly gave up on on that uh even though i was quite interested in it but yeah i don't, I yeah. don't think it worked well no it's the so, same for me and also it's it's not really consistent and i guess it's partly just due to technological issues it's very sensitive to just missing one heartbeat and then you have like, quite an impact if you're not filtering that correctly with the value that you're getting or also have something submitted now that is not only sensitive to your thresholds but also just to overall fatigue so that means if you're a bit fatigued then it's also impacting the values that you're getting so in, in that sense, it's if you want, want to use it as, let's say, a training intensity um, tool, it would only work if you're completely fresh. But if you're fatigued, then sort of the intensity values that you're getting are also impacted by fatigue. So you don't know that anymore. I'm at training below my first threshold, below the second one, because then you have fatigue also impacting those values. So that's, again, making right. it quite tricky. Yeah, that's interesting. So I know we're running low on time, so let's finish up with the rapid-fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? I think that's by far still the book by French Bosch. Um, it's, I'm not sure the English name, actually, but I think it's called Running and Biomechanics. And I think like it's probably about 10 years ago when I was still going on training camps a lot. I think I brought it five times on my training camp and just in between the training sessions, I just kept reading it and I just still find it 
just a super interesting book to understand on a fundamental biomechanical and also yeah mostly biomechanical level why are we running the way we're running and how can we understand how muscles are functioning what are the implications for strength training and also some let's say running drills so i've just found it very fascinating book Mm, yeah that's a good one and what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically personally or professionally um i think planning in my training sessions as, as at least in an attempt uh, as the first thing in the day and then trying to structure my day around that as much as possible because then i know my training sessions give me some kind of structure and also i, I just tend to notice on days where i'm not training which is like only actually occurring in uh, tapering week or something my focus is just completely gone so for some reason i just really needed training stimulus so initially i was still thinking it's, it's taking up time like all all the training um, but i just more and more keep finding out that even though it's taking time the time that i have to work um, um is just much more efficiently so i'm actually getting much more done in a day even though i have less hours in a day to work so that's quite yeah, and interesting and something that might help a lot of people as well to just try and make sure, try and get that exercise in. Gives you less time, but the hours that you have are actually spent much more efficient. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I, I think exactly the same. And uh, it's surprising initially when you when, when you find it, when you get injured and you think that you'll get so much work done. I had a bike crash this weekend and I, I was thinking that, oh, well, great, I'll get a lot, lot of work done. But actually, then you find that, well, the productivity is not as high as when you're training. So it's still the same amount of work that you managed to do. Exactly. It's well, At least for me, it works like one day and, and then it really starts to decline. So one day I'm super productive still, but yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah. work long. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, Buzz, so much. Uh, just final question and I'll let you go. Where can the listeners follow you? Um, I'm on Twitter. So it's just my handle. I think it's at uh, Buzz van Hoven. I'm also on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Uh, so yeah, that, but that's also it. I'm like not on Instagram and, and the, all the other stuff. It's just getting too much for me. Yeah. But uh, right. at least on Twitter, I'm quite active. Great. All right. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com. And uh, just as a quick follow-up on the topic about the older uh, world-class runners, uh, we weren't sure at the time of recording what their PBs actually were, but the full-text articles are available, and I have put links for them in the show notes, so you can check out the entire article. Uh, but uh, I'll, uh, I have uh, looked through them to check what were the times actually that these runners set, and for the marathon world record holder in the 70 to 74 age group, that was the 71-year-old, his uh, marathon world record was 250. 54.19 and his personal best uh, of all time was 2.41.01 at the age of 54 so that shows you uh, how much of his old PB he managed to retain even uh, what is it 17 years later then on the other hand the middle distance runner the 75 year old had the world record for the mile in the 75 to 79 age group and uh, his mile world record was 5.41 uh, he also had uh, top uh, results not world records but uh, world ranking top results in the 75 to 79 age group for the 800 his pb there or his uh, age category pb there was 234 and for the 1500 it was 330 but that is almost exactly the same uh, pace as the mile or very small difference anyway that gives you an idea of of the level of these runners and it is really very inspiring to hear about these times at the ages that uh, these runners were but i'll have lots of links uh, to uh, different articles and uh, publications that we discussed in the show notes so you can check them out it's also worth uh, going to uh, Bas website basvanhoren.com i'll link to that as well he has uh, written some really nice articles that uh concisely summarizes some of these studies that he's been work, worked on so so that's uh, yeah that's, that's a really nice resource as well to look into if you want to to dig a bit deeper 
Now, I want to just give you another reminder about our 2024 training camp in Mallorca. Uh, this will be in April, and you can find all of the information on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash Mallorca. Uh, there you can also find testimonials that we have from participants of our previous editions of the camp. So check them out, because that will give you a really good perspective of all the different reasons to join our camp. But just to read out one example, uh, one participant said, quote, it was simply fantastic. The setup with coaches and guides the people uh, the resort the food the island and even the weather it was a memorable week and i can't wait to do it again already end quote so if you're interested in an experience like this check out scientifictriathlon.com forward slash mallorca and follow the instructions there to register or email me directly on michael at scientifictriathlon.com Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. Use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Zenate. Use the Zenate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Zenate workout done at home that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Zenate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on zenatesimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.